0: Hey there, I'm Pete Townsend and this is Money Never Sleeps. We look inside the minds of entrepreneurs and at the crossover of startups, enterprise, finance, technology, and life as we know it. Before we dive into this week's episode of Money Never Sleeps, just a quick heads up that the ETH Dublin Hackathon 2023 is on this weekend from May 26th to the 28th at Dogpatch Labs in Dublin. ETH Dublin is the first Web3-focused hackathon conducted in Ireland and the idea is to create a space for the community to build and attract talent to the Web3 ecosystem. Check out the details on ETHDublin.io. On the show this week, we've got Greg Hannum, co-founder and CEO of PeerCat, one of the 12 founding teams forming the Techstars Web3 Accelerator class of 2023. PeerCat is a data analytics tool for marketers to help them understand their users, increase engagement, and drive growth in their Web3 strategies. PeerCat combines multiple data sources with machine learning to connect the dots between Web2 and Web3 and provide powerful insights into user behavior across disparate platforms. Before co-founding PeerCat with Ben Marshall and Ike Iwamene, Greg's roots bring him back to mechanical engineering at the University of Leeds, before diving headfirst into deep data analytics, product management, and then working with a number of VC-backed deep tech startups in the AI space, developing product, growth, and operations functions. In this episode, Greg connects the dots for us on how his life experiences drove him toward the PeerCat vision, before we dive into what PeerCat is all about right now and the value the platform delivers to businesses moving from Web 2 into Web 3, we also go down the rabbit hole into how the usage of the technical construct that is a non-fungible token, or NFT, has evolved since 2017, where it's all going, and how Peercat will capture the growth, before finishing with some life lessons and insights from Greg, all right here on Money Never Sleeps. I'm- never surprised at the backstories of people that I have on the show because we've had so many different types of people on the show Greg and I knew yours obviously coming into this chat because you know we've invested in PeerCat in your business right mm-hmm. so we we did take a a good hard look at at your past and but I'd like for you to connect the dots instead of me okay And that I picked out a few things that were interesting to me to share with others around scouting, mechanical engineering, (laughs) deep data analytics, business intelligence, venture building, which is pretty interesting, and now co-founder and CEO of PureCat. Tell me how you connect the dots and why this all makes sense, Greg Hannum.
1: Yeah it's funny looking back I think Steve Jobs said follow what your intuition says or follow your interests and then you won't be able to connect the dots at the time but looking back a sort of path emerges. Scouting is very far back I mean I started that at six years old I think and I went right through the organization right until I was leading a group that had anywhere between 70 to 100 scouts at any one time I was you know Looking at how to take them on hiking, go camping with them, so much organization. And yeah, I really learned some great lessons in sort of leadership in how you can have a good control over any given situation, chaos erupts anytime a load of kids, or oh, that many kids get together. And I think that's really helped me in later life to sort of lead teams and yeah, it's sort of still using those skills to these de- to this day. Oh, Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. And and (laughs) is
0: the motto still be prepared? I was a scout.
1: Yes. Yeah. It is be prepared. And I, yeah, I still live by that. I always check the weather before I go out. (laughs) Probably entrenched muscle memory there. (laughs) As
0: we say in Ireland, there's no such thing as bad weather, just (laughs) inappropriate clothing. Yeah. Right. So be prepared.
1: Yeah. Fast forward quite a lot mechanical engineering at university. That's an interesting one because originally I was going to go in for economics. And I turned up at the at Warwick University, I think it was, and I went to the economics talk. They were doing like their introduction to it, and then I went to the engineering talk. And the economics one was quite like verbal and didn't have many examples of what they were gonna do. It was all just talk, talk through. Engineering, they got us instantly playing in like the wave machine and stuff like that. And I was like, actually, this sounds a lot more fun. So I ended up doing engineering, switching off. Economics. Very glad I did. It's funny that wave machine thing, it must have sparked something because I ended up specializing in something called computational fluid dynamics, which is the study of fluid environments. So when you see the Red Bull racing car with the slipstreams and stuff mapped out over the, the wings, that's the sort of simulations that I was doing. So it was really heavy on data. I looked at everything from data centers startups looking at how you could use convection currents to cool big memory boards and i did some work for gsk looking at how you could inspect syringes and this was pre-covid and i think became quite well used in it during COVID, how you could inspect syringes for defects because they have all these pre-filled medical syringes going through of every different vaccine and yeah they needed to understand if there was any defects in that so wow All that processing, all that data sort of gave me a real good background in that. After uni, I tried to get a job in Leeds, actually, which was where I went to university. But I couldn't find anywhere that sort of fit the bill. And I ended up back in London, which is where I'm from. I landed in a boutique law consultancy, and we helped lawyers understand their finances a lot better. So really going to that granular level, presenting the information back in sort of business intelligence dashboards, and like I say, just helping them make more money, which, you know, it's never that popular. Yeah, for, for lawyers. lawyers. <laughs> I know, I know. We,
0: yeah, we, I think we talked about this before, the, those two threads there, that my sister had a similar mechanical engineering path as you and went through PhD at MIT. Mm. And there was a lot of fluid that she talked about, a lot of <laughs> cooling that she talked about, in engines and motors and plastic-grown engines and all this wonderful kind of stuff. So mm. good connection point there. And, and we can be careful because my mom previously was a lawyer before she became a mediator. So yeah. uh, the, the power of data in law is something that is quite unique.
1: It, yeah, it was fascinating that these lawyers who charge thousands and thousands of pounds per hour still were putting together budgets for certain accounts that actually they were going over budget for. And you know so they, the, the firm as a whole was losing money and yet you know they, they have probably one of the best paying, paying jobs in the world. So it was fascinating to see what data can unlock. And as a business, how that helps them drive forward. Yeah. So that company was like a small consultancy. Like I said, we, I was, think I was number seven. We grew it to 20 over a year and a half or so. And then we got acquired and moving from a 20 person organization to a 200 person organization overnight was quite a big change for me. In the grand scheme of things, it's probably nothing, but I felt the change, the red tape, the bureaucracy creep in. I knew it was sort of like a a ticking timer for how long I was there in this bigger organization, but I learned a huge amount of skills, product management, managing multiple stakeholders, all that sort of stuff. And that was really good training for, okay, how do I actually apply frameworks to build better, faster products (laughs) and get it out to market more more quickly. So yeah, that was an incredibly valuable time. And I picked up the skills I needed to then go into the venture building. Yeah. I met a chap while I was at this bigger company and he was, he said, well, I'm on my sabbatical. Can you, I'm interested in startups. You also seem interested in startups. Cause I, I've sort of pitched him on a, on a hardware idea, which we'll go into another time, but he said, look, I'm helping these Oxford university spin outs who have venture back in, but they can't commercialize that well. So could you come in and help? And yeah, so I went and did that for two or so years and. Yeah, learned, again, learned so much. Did a Microsoft Roadshow. So flew out to, I think it was seven different cities on three different continents, pitching this AI tool. I then went in and helped a labeling company, again, working out their commercialization strategy. So sort of done the technical bit, then did the commercial bit. And I think that's really set me up well for PeerCat now, which is yeah. sort of where we are. <laughs> I'm, I'm
0: getting that. I'm getting that. And that, that deep, deep, deep experience in data. And... Red Bull Racing series slipstreams, <laughs> right? I don't even yeah. want to get into that. And there are huge, huge, huge amounts of data there. Yeah. Making sense of that and being able to present it to those in professional services. Yep. Yeah. Understanding I- organizations and organization size, and going from like you said, seven to twenty to two hundred people, and seeing how that all happens. And then this diversity of experience across a bunch of different kinds of startups, and just helping them. Yeah. All of that is a wonderful boot camp for you <laughs> to get to the stage of becoming a startup founder. So tell me how you and Ben and Ike got together to form PureCat.
1: Yeah, so we actually met at a Hackathon in 2019. We were on the last one in team, as they call it. We were complete randomers. We didn't have a team. And so, yeah, we sort of formed around Ben who happened to be (laughs) happened to be there for the initial kickoff i think he had to go and pitch an idea Well, in fact it came with two ideas he pitched one which he was more keen on which he was actively working on and then he pitched a second which everyone else liked so (laughs) unfortunately he had to give up the one he liked and we went and worked on a live streaming idea which yeah we we built throughout the hackathon it was like a two-week thing we won that and then went on to win many more hackathons and stuff i think that quite quickly, we realized who would work in the team and who wouldn't. So I think the hackathon had seven people. We actually whittled it down to four, uh, and, and they've become the co-founders. And
0: Okay. And what was the live stream idea? Why yeah, do you so think it th- won the hackathon?
1: I think it was novel. It was like Uber for live streaming, if that makes <laughs> Don't sense. Don't say Uber for anything, ever. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but the concept was that you could drop a pin on a map. So the Hong Kong protests were quite big at the time and we wanted a uncensorable live stream from that part of the world Uh, and in exchange you would send micro payments the other way so it was sort of like a I need to know this information now i want an unbiased view of it is anyone in the area yes i am okay sort of a bit like a gig economy so that's why i drew drew the comparison (laughs) and
0: why do you think that you you wrapped it up why why didn't you guys pursue that what was the lesson that came out of that
1: yeah, so that was interesting. There was sort of, yeah, through through building those, there was a f- couple of lessons we actually learned. One was incentives don't necessarily mean good business. So we were on a EVM chain called ThunderCore, which we deployed this app to. We had 66,000 users in 188 countries. I was just disappointed that we didn't get anyone in the Vatican City using it. Okay. But the reason why we were able to do that was we offered two Thunder Tokens to jump on and try out the app, do a couple of actions, and then jump off. And, well, what happened was people then jumped off and then didn't come back. So they claimed the tokens, and that was it. So we got all these users, but the retention was just horrible. And through that, we realized, actually, we need to build for a problem that is sort of consistent. It's going to happen every day and make people want to come back to to the app and to interact with us. So I think that was our real big learning from that video live streaming. It was far too serendipitous.
0: Yeah. Plus, yeah, you can't... it needs to be passive. It needs yeah. to be passive. There's a company, Natix, which is a tech stars company, and they're putting cameras on the dashboard of people's cars, okay, and basically mapping the world in 3D. Oh wow! And that if you have the camera, then and you're recording and you're submitting your video, then yeah. and whatever you filmed, you get the micro payments back in the form of a token.
1: Oh, interesting,
0: right? So it's totally passive. It's just you're driving around, you turn the camera on, you're mapping the world. Yeah. And I got all excited about that. This is a couple of years ago I was talking to them. And I'm like, oh my God, you're like designing a real world metaverse with yeah. 3D. And they're like, Yeah, we could do that, but not sure that's <laughs> the number one idea, Pete. So mm. anyway, but no, that that's it these lessons learned that you get out of this, and then you see somebody else doing something similar a couple of years down the road. Yeah. How did all of this morph then into PeerCat?
1: Yeah, so after we scrapped that idea, there was a bit of soul searching. We, we realized that as a team, it, this sort of social media sort of play wasn't what we had envisioned. So we actually ended up doing a couple of grants just to keep the team going, build out a few things we were interested in. The first one was on, on something called Interledger Protocol. That was the micropayments technology we were using. So we got a grant from something called Grant for the Web. That gave us enough standing to then go ahead and get a grant from the XRPL Foundation so we got one grant from them to build out open source minting software, and as we were building that and delivering it, we realised that actually there's a much more pressing matter, which brands who were getting into the space couldn't make sense of the data that was coming back. So, you know, Web three promises a vision of like highly engaged communities of super fans, and a load of brands brought brought in to their credit, launching various initiatives to yeah, get closer to their fans than ever before. As the hype faded though, I think we started to see marketing teams getting asked about ROI to justify their ongoing spend. In terms of a real world example to understand what's going on, our persona, we call her Alice. She's the head of marketing at a brand and she's been put in charge of overseeing their web3 effort. However, with the recent negative press, the exec team has asked for a presentation on the ongoing investment. Alice wants to combine quantitative and qualitative data, so take in any token-gated interaction with on-chain and social data. Qualitative is okay at the moment. We have quite good tools to understand Web2 to monitor social media chatter. However, when you look at quantitative, You'd probably have to hire in like a web three data scientist, which there aren't a lot of in the world to wrangle the data, structure it and extract any insights. Even after all that, you'd then have to go through and work out if there's any links between your web two people and your web three people. And so, yeah, it's just a real sticky problem getting to that ROI answer. In a parallel world, Alice has already bought PeerCap, which has done a lot of the hard work. Combining multiple data sources with machine learning, to connect the dots between web two and web three. And we feed that data into the tool she's already familiar with, HubSpot, Salesforce, that sort of thing. So in doing so, we give marketers the ability to answer their bosses, prove the ROI and win in web three. And we think that's a really powerful idea to help proliferate the technology.
0: Okay, cool. And and maybe just to, to pull on that thread a little bit, Greg, that the, the data that, that you can mine out of blockchains, because mm. that's what this is, right? And that you can present some actionable insights and on a user by user basis. Yeah. You know, give us an example of the value, the deliverable to Alice, right? What What is she looking at? What is she consuming? And how does she then turn that into something that is worth pursuing?
1: Yeah. So at the moment, people hang out in their third space, the Twitter, the Discord. Brands have a lever that they can pull to try and sort of incentivize that. So they spend money in social media to promote the new NFT drop, stuff like that. They then launch the the projects and people go in and buy the NFTs. And then they do stuff with that on chain. Now what, where the missing link is at the moment is connecting the social media output, the spend there to the on chain activity. I sort of frame it as cost per value. As a as a sort of little saying, that's not mine. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely borrowed it from somewhere and the credit to that person.
0: Whoever they may be. <laughs> Whoever
1: they may be. But yeah, this idea of, okay, I can pull this lever and put input in here, spend on social media, on influencers, on ads. And on the other side, I get on-chain activity, people engaging. That's what we're looking at making that link.
0: Okay, okay. And the last thing I want to do here, and I may delete this when I listen back and I'm not happy <laughs> with it, is to draw an inference to anything having to do with gambling, okay? Because I think someone in the UK, the FCA or or Treasury, or someone came out recently and said something about crypto and and, and gambling. And we'll talk about NFTs more a bit in a second, Mm. but that Matt McAllister, shout out to him, he is the co-founder and CEO of a business called Mortgage Propeller. But in a previous life, he was with Paddy Power Betfair. Right. And he explained to me how they could tie – their social media spend on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever, mm. to their six month future revenue. And say, if they spent X now, in six months, that would result in Y in revenue. And just because of the way people respond to ads, the way they see things in social media, click, get engaged, whatever. Yeah. And it sounds like you're pursuing a similar path here.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's a, it's a, brave new world for marketers in a way web three step stepping into the unknown i mean we've seen multiple people fail at it porsche chevy those guys yeah their launches went down really badly yeah and so i think yeah there's t- there's probably two parts to it maybe the gambling the gambling guys did what we're looking to do so you know linking what people do in that third space to their on-chain value it's the same thing but i think we're brands will take it is it's, it might not necessarily be value that they're trying to drive it might be brand reputation and value is a measure of that so it'll be interesting to see what comes out in the wash when people look at it and go yeah. okay this is actually the data point that i need Gambling is quite specific so yeah i know i know and
0: it, it's it, it's probably a terrible analogy but you know and, and one that i didn't want to draw any any relation to because of, of where we're going with nfts but I'm seeing this connectivity between the way that companies and brands advertise these days on Mm -hmm. social media and the data that is available on that to a connectivity with on-chain data for when these brands are engaging via tokens, via non-fungible tokens, NFTs, with their audience, with their super fans, as you're saying, to then sales results. And being able to do the data mining to pull all this together in the same way that you are crunching and pounding and churning data in for Red Bull Racing Series going over a slipstream. Yeah. Because it's it's a huge amount of data that you need to mine here and you need some pretty good data talent like Ike, your CTO, to be able to make sense of all this with a machine learning type approach.
1: Yeah. And I think that, it, I, I always think of it as like the Disney flywheel. So they, they spend so much on branding, on advertising, and then they want people to then go and buy the DVD. Then they watch the DVDs at home and then the kids are like, let's go to Disneyland. And they go to Disneyland and spend money and buy merch. The Disney flywheel is predicated on LTV, lo- lo- lifetime customer value. Yep. And yeah, the, the gambling analogy does work because for Disney- I prefer that, the Disney flywheel. Okay, we'll, we'll, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll keep the Disney then. Yeah, so- Disney, they are driving LTV. We could look at cost per acquisition of user, all those sort of other marketing metrics, but at the moment performance marketing doesn't exist in web three. So I think we're seeing the, the birth of this sort of a second, a new industry almost. Oh yeah, oh open.
0: yeah, Oh, it, it all been driven on so much. Oh, can I get a Lambo with, <laughs> yeah. you know, the profit I just made on my, on my? do I wanna say Bored Ape? I'm gonna say Bored Ape and, and, <laughs> and risk alienating a, 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 a few folks, but you know, whatever. On that note, we're going down a really interesting path here. During the selection process with Techstars, we talked a lot about NFT 1.0, which is just that, the profile pics, right? And then moving to NFT 2.0, which is that plus more of a community and a membership, right? I feel like I want to be part of this tribe. I want to be part of the CryptoPunks tribe. I want to be part of the Bored Ape tribe. I'm willing to use some of the ETH that I've been accumulating over the years to participate in that and to show my badge and to wear my badge that I am part of this community, right? Moving to NFT3.0, which we talk a lot about things such as token-gated experiences, both in real life and virtual, soul-bound tokens, right, where you are talking more about digital ID and we're seeing a lot of interesting things happen Mm -hmm. there big brand loyalty programs, this is all data-driven. And this is all, you know, when we were just talking through this connectivity between social media spend, on-chain data, and brand revenue, I see all the pieces starting to line here. But which one, for you, what version of the NFT landscape? And like I've said before, I hate using NFT, right? This technology acronym to really describe this space but it's the best we have because i think digital collectible to me not everything's a digital collectible in the nft space it's some of this is just becoming middleware right mm. so which version of this 1.0 2.0 3.0 are you most attracted to for the long term and why
1: yeah so it's interesting so like blockchain started with fungibility and being money however nfts are really what we see as the future they represent so many more things in our lives than fungible tokens you know and and those things like in our lives you don't necessarily care about the price of um so we think our our viewpoint is that that will go away like constantly watching the price doing the accumulation of wealth through nfts we think that will be secondary to brands and loyalty programs like you say the nft 3.0 thing because really it offers a way for brands to get closer to their fans. We think that will bring more Web2 people in than any other type of uh, incentive. So we we look at it, we think this is going to become the dominant form of marketing. The reason why we think that is because brands ha- have a huge amount of intangibles on their balance sheet. I think Rao Powell says it's about 74 trillion that's sitting in, <laughs> in yeah. intangibles. And that's stuff like IP, brand loyalty, all those things. And NFTs, while the price isn't important, they do actually quantify that for brands. Again, going back to our Disney analogy, if we make NFTs for all the Disney stuff and we're able to track that, what sort of market cap would Disney have as a company versus as an NFT project? It's a really interesting idea, a really interesting concept. You're talking one of the most culturally relevant brands in the entire world, probably touched everyone's life across the world. How, how valuable is that and I think that's what nfts will measure not that it will get into you know that sort of way we think it will be more of an engagement tool but it's just one one thing to look at how brands can convert intangibles into tangibles yeah yeah
0: I'm with you I'm with you and you got me really thinking deep here today Greg and <laughs> Sorry. no 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 it's good it's good it might have been the cup of espresso I just knocked back <laughs> before we started recording this but people may ask and say, all right, you've got this social media spend, this way that people engage with brands, and you've got their revenue output on the other end of it. Why not just connect the two? And it's that we have this additional digital link between Mm. those two variables in this equation of a a brand success. And when you look at a loyalty program, perhaps that is tokenized and on-chain, Yep. Where you look at perhaps a soulbound token that is representative of all of the loyalty programs that I may be a member of, I'd have one token that just automatically that is dynamic that automatically gets updated. And where I am part of Starbucks, where I'm part of Jesus, I don't do enough shopping to be able to you know where where I'm part of the YouTube fan club, right? Yeah. Where I have my for my my Boston Red Sox fan club. Right, where I have everything accruing to when I take my kids to a Leinster rugby match, Mm. and all of these points that are adding up on this, and with with a soulbound token, that is all just very rich data, and with Web three, that can be anonymous, and that with the the rise of of zero knowledge proofs and the technology around that, this is going to kind of quell the fear that a number of folks that I talk to have about, well, I'm living my life in all of this in public because all of this on-chain data is public. I'm like, yeah, but at the same time, it can be anonymous and you can prove that you're a certain age just by, hey, I've got my age in this soulbound token and that I can then authenticate myself without giving away any personal information to the party that needs to know how old I am in order to receive services or do something like that, right? Or buy a beer for that matter. So there's this intersection point of all of this as well with this scary thing called AI, and that if we're able to move the world into a framework of their kind of commercial lives being on chain, that it's going to make it a lot easier to fuel the AI systems, programs, algorithms around all of this to deliver, well, even more value for somebody or perhaps even more you know, the Terminator reality. <laughs> which one would you like to go to? And where I, do you see this becoming a big part of everybody's day?
1: Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I sort of touched on why the brands might get involved, but you've you've hit a good point there, which is why consumers might get involved. And I think there's sort of two things there. One, NFTs give you digital ownership. You said Soulbound tokens. This is you in the metaverse effectively. And it's all the social signals and stuff wrapped into that, which is fundamental human psychology. The other part of it is every time I always like to think of NFTs and holding NFTs as sort of the best survey that anyone's ever going to do, because you're here going, Oh, I've got this NFT. I've held it for a long time. I'm interested in this. That is such a strong signal for brands to say, Oh, these are our fans. These are our real fans. And we talked about, earlier, like what the extra link between the two, what web three gives us, if they're holding that NFT, we can then look at every time they engage as well. And that engagement is going to be them using their social collateral, their social currency and going in and using their NFT to get access to something. And that's like real usage. We always talk about vanity metrics versus Actual metrics in business, you know, revenue versus profit, two very different things. And I think the same sort of analogy is applied here. Like a fan actively engaging is pro- probably, <laughs> caveat that, probably much more valuable than a fan who is just, you know, on social media talking about it because it's actual real activity. And I think that's, that's where it gets really exciting. So yeah, we've got this great survey. Everyone's doing stuff. If you then zoom out on that and you look at all these anonymous wallets and all the nfts they hold there's just a fascinating interest graph that forms we saw tiktok the rise of tiktok why why did they win why why is twitter so interesting it's that interest graph i think we're we're on the precipice of seeing nfts become you know a new layer to build really cool products on top and understand people even if they are anonymous through their wallets in such a new way i ju- yeah, I'm fascinated by the data. So <laughs> I think it's really cool.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking I'm, there's another <laughs> rabbit hole I could go down here. And, I, and and it's called the DeFi Matrix. And it's, okay, I'm going to stop because <laughs> it's. I think it's Wednesday. I always get like this midweek. But listen, you guys learned some pretty valuable lessons in the different variations of this business that you've had over the years and, and clearly have an excellent picture of where you're going and hopefully all of our listeners hopefully all of our listeners do as well through the meandering we've done here but what do you think is the single biggest lesson that you learned so far about with these different variations that you've had of the business with 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 ike and with ben
1: yeah I, i think the single biggest learning for us is go where the people are distribution beats cool tech you know we I said about that EVM chain and, you know, we got 66,000 users. Yeah. And that that was because we embedded our tech into another thing that already had usage. And then the same again goes, happened this time where we embedded a a simple NFT viewer into a wallet that's given us, you know, 5,000 monthly active users, which has sort of seeded this database, this idea and really allowed us to test a lot of things, get rid of the bad ideas quickly when you have users, you can do that sort of stuff. And yeah, so my my sort of advice from our learnings is sort of embed, go to where the people are. And, you know, from like a brand side or a business side, you know, embed into the tools they're already using. It's so painful when you see people spend all this money building out, for example, a new CRM system, when HubSpot, you're not gonna unseat HubSpot (laughs) (laughs) anytime soon from our point of view, you can just plug in because it is just data. And yeah. I think that's that's probably the biggest piece of advice I'd give to any sort of startup founder. Look at how you can play nice. Don't give away your competitive edge, <laughs> which is always the hot thread in the needle with API plays. But yeah, that that's sort of it. That's our, our biggest takeaway.
0: <laughs> that's a good one. And I, I'm judging at the ETH Dublin Hackathon this weekend yeah. on Sunday. And I can't wait to ask my questions, which are, okay, so... <laughs> Talk to me about your customers. Mm. Talk to me about your users because so much focus when, when it's at the earliest stages of creation, it's like, I had this idea to create this really awesome thing and you get passion and energy about it. But then, okay, what about the users? Who's going to do that? Right. Go to where the people are. Yeah. Love that. Love that. (laughs) If you had a time machine, Greg, and you could go to the future to visit your 50 year old self, (laughs) I just turned 50, right? Congrats. Thank you. Everyone's saying congrats. Like, <laughs> like, 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 I've made it this far. Yeah, Congratulations. you survived. <laughs> I've survived. <laughs> but if you could visit your 50-year-old self, right, what do you think the words of wisdom that your 50-year-old self would give to today's Greg Hannum?
1: Yeah, I, I thought about this I, and I came up with, lean in and enjoy the process classic example of this the other day you put together a panel on nft ownership it's not something i've ever talked about before and yeah i was was super stressful in the moment i literally you know wanted to run away i felt really sick and i don't know if that came across i I hope not i tried to keep it calm (laughs) keep it collected you did fine but yeah and then after you know, your anxiety goes right down, your heart rate drops and you think, why, why was I making all that fuss? So it's like, yeah, lean in, say yes. We're at this crazy point in history and we've sort of touched on different bits here where these next generation industries are forming AI, Web3, like green tech, all these sort of exponential industries, all these exponential technologies are coming out at once. And if you're not immersed, if you're not willing to put yourself out there and get uncomfortable, I think you'll miss out you know <laughs> when 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 problems arrive okay you've just got a panel you need to go on you don't know what you're going to say you know say that say thank you for that moment okay obviously it, it feels a lot different when you're in that moment but i think yeah. that's going to be my advice looking back is like you know well done for saying yes the other day you guys asked for a volunteer i was like okay let's do this i have no idea what i'm going to say Oh yeah. Let's go for it. <laughs> oh yeah. I'll make, no, a, you, you, make a fool of myself, but that's all right. <laughs> you did. No, you
0: did great. And just so the world knows what Greg Hannum did a couple of days ago was that he volunteered to do a mock negotiation on closing his round with David Cohen, <laughs> the legendary David Cohen, the, one of the, the founders of tech stars, who's now chairman of tech And this is a session that he does for founders in each, in each term. And so we had a bunch of different tech programs all at once and, Greg successfully got David Cohen to commit by by removing the obstacles in David's way. Reflecting right. And obviously sweats. this is a mock negotiation. Yep. We've already you know, Techstars has already invested in Peercat. So But, you know, it bodes well for the following rounds to see how you're performed in that. So that that was that was fantastic. And I, I, you know, just reflecting on what you just said as well, Greg, what I like to say is that always put yourself into positions that you're completely unqualified for. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like I walked out of BNP Paribas in 2015, 2016, 2016, to be exact, with a dream of becoming a venture investor. I had absolutely no qualification to do any of that besides spirit and passion and drive. Right. And it took a few years, but I got there Mm. and, you know, I was completely unqualified to be pursuing that vision at the point, but you learn, you learn along the way. Right. So we've, you know, we talked through scouting earlier and I, I think thinking about your personality and knowing you a bit now, Greg, and that there's that does explain a lot. I think you're a very natural <laughs> helpful person and community building and those types of traits are are coming through pretty strongly. What would be one thing that people wouldn't expect to know about you though?
1: Yeah, so maybe a similar vibe to the scouting thing I I actually took up when I was at university. I took up the vice presidential role in the windsurfing society. Wow. University, again, piece of advice for anyone who's heading there, is the time that you can reinvent yourself. You can try all sorts of hats on. I've never done windsurfing before, never even thought about it, quite frankly. And then, yeah, tried it in the first year, really enjoyed it. There was an opportunity. I I said yes (laughs) because I try and push myself out of my comfort zone. Um, And yeah, so I ended up being the vice president again It was a lot of skills that I relied on in the past, sorting out a group of 30 people going down to Cornwall for like a a weekend where all the windsurfing societies come together and, well, not party, but obviously do a very, you know, intentional practice of windsurfing. But yeah, it was just, again, it was such an amazing experience. And yeah, putting yourself in those situations is like one of them. And so, yeah, not a lot of people know that. I probably also am one of the few society leaders that didn't actually manage to do the activity they were leading oh, really? the whole year. I, it was my third year. There was deadlines every single time that they that we'd organized a trip. So I ended up sitting on the beach sometimes, typing away on the laptop to get deadlines wow. done. Do you... and I didn't actually get to go windsurfing that You've year. You've never so been well. windsurfing? I, I have been windsurfing, but not in the year I was vice president of windsurfing society. So, um, oh my yeah, that's God. That's the claim to somewhat fame <laughs> wow wow no no that that is
0: definitely a rarity you know the, it it's like no i don't have an analogy ready for that i don't <laughs> so greg what's the best way for people to get in touch with you
1: yeah you can find me on twitter it's at zero x or email me greg at peercat.com
0: Listen, Greg, this has been such an enjoyable chat, and one that, given our relationship to date, I think that this was half expected, half unexpected to go down this path. So, thank you. I really appreciate you coming out to the show and sharing all of this, and looking forward to
1: talking to you. Well, probably later today. Yeah. So, thanks for the opportunity to speak. Really appreciate it. That does
0: it for this week, folks. Thanks to Greg Hannum for opening up his mind to help us figure out why he does what he does. You can learn more about Greg and in the show notes on our website, moneyneversleeps.ie. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating and or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify as it helps others to find the show. Thanks to Conan Brophy from Create Sound for mixing and editing this episode. Conan is an excellent media man to get in touch with when you're thinking about launching your own podcast. As for me, I'm an early stage startup investor focused on where fintech meets crypto and crypto meets Web3, and I lead the Techstars Web3 Accelerator. There are plenty of links in the show notes on moneyneversleeps.ie on how to get in touch, so don't hesitate to reach out. Finally, till next time, thanks for listening. See ya! Money